Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We, and we thank you for your cross and your resurrection and the particular witness of Martin Luther to uh, the glory of your Son. And we pray that um, this morning would be um, beneficial to all of us as we reflect through the eyes of Luther and the various modes of Luther reception on Jesus' cross and his resurrection. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Again, thank you for coming and thank you for this generous introduction. Um, so let me, let me start with um, uh, sort of what I have up there, uh, the Warholized Luther. Um, Robert Jensen, the Lutheran theologian, says that uh, Luther is one of the very few theologians in the history of the church who are absolutely uh, and who were absolutely necessary. Uh, we could say that about Athanasius. We could probably say that about Cyril of Alexandria. We could say that about um, St. Thomas Aquinas. And we can perhaps say that also about Luther. And that already means that Luther impacts uh, different denominations and, uh, and different modes of thinking in a variety of ways. Uh, already in that kind of theological mode, Luther is refracted and variously received, and not always in a positive way. Um, sometimes it's a pushback, and uh, sometimes it's a respectful pushback, and sometimes not so respectful pushback. But um, besides being a necessary theologian, Luther is also a cultural icon. And I guess that also sort of speaks to the Warholized Luther I have, um, um, uh, I have up on the screen here as well. Um, and Luther, I think you'll be interested to know, was a cultural icon already in his own time. And the first person to uh, refract Luther was one of his Catholic opponents, uh, Johannes uh, Colchius, uh, who in 1529 published the first ever biography of Luther called The Seven-Headed Luther. Um, where, uh, and I'll give you a brief, ex brief explanation of sort of how Colchius um, approached Luther's heritage, uh, which in 1529 was by no means over and done with yet. So the first two heads are Doctor and Martinus. Um, and Colchius says, say, uh, says the following about um, those two heads. They are the elder brothers, and they come closest to the opinion of the church. That's a gesture to the fact that Luther was... Uh, uh, had been brought up in the uh, in the Church of Rome, and that uh, uh, he had received his doctorate and education um, uh, in Catholic faculties. So the, they, the the two elder brothers come closest to the opinion of the Church, and they are to be believed above all the others. They are to be believed above all the others. If anything anywhere in Luther's books can be believed with any certainty at all, he writes. Uh, Lutherus, however according to his surname, plays a wicked game, just like Ishmael. And I think uh, Colchius is here referring to the Greek, or um, a similar word in the Greek, which means free, sort of difficult to capture, if you like. Um, then then uh, the fourth head is Ecclesiastes, who tells people who are always keen on novelties, pleasant things. Then Schwermans, who rages furiously and errs in the manner of Phaeton throughout the skies. And that's the um, son of the sun god uh, Helios, who almost plunged the sun's chariot into the earth and destroyed the earth. So um, Luther is, is compared here to, um, to Phaeton, 
uh, and uh, accused of doing something like that. Perhaps taking um, certain dogmatic debates that for a lot of Luther's contemporaries had placed only in the university and putting them, um, putting them out there before the people for people to debate. And um, uh, Colchius says that's dangerous. Uh, certain things should, st should stay in the academy and in the theology faculties. The sixth head is Barabbas, who is looking for violence and sedition everywhere. And the last is Visitator, who is adorned with a new mitre and ambitious for a new papacy, who prescribes new laws of ceremonies and many old ones which he had previously abolished. And he, re he revokes, he removes, and he reduces. And that, says Colchius, is the sum of my book. So that's the first example of Luther reception, uh, not a very favorable one, um, and Luther refraction into his seven faces or seven heads. Now, the reception of Luther, let me say, let me say a, a couple of words about that, among Lutherans was obviously very different. Um, Luther, all, already in the very early 1520s, was considered to be a teacher, and even more than that, a prophet. Um, so much so that when Luther died and that news reached Wittenberg, <coughs> Philip Melanchthon is reported to have, to have exclaimed, fallen is the charioteer of Israel. Um, fallen is the man who was like Elijah. And Melanchthon said in um, Luther's funeral oration the following things about him. And here again, you will see different faces of Luther, but um, uh, very different from Colchius's seven heads. This is what Melanchthon said. God has always preserved a proportion of his servants upon the earth. And now, through Martin Luther, a more, splend a more splendid period of light and truth has appeared. Solon, Themistocles, Scipio, Augustus, and others, who either established or ruled over mighty empires, were truly great men, Melanchthon says, but far far inferior to our illustrious leaders, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Augustine, and Luther. And it becomes us to study this distinction. So here we have Luther as already larger than life, not just a political leader, but somebody in the same line as Isaiah, John the Baptist, Augustine, and St. Paul. What then are those great and important things which Luther has disclosed to our view and which render his life so remarkable. For many are exclaiming against him as a disturber of the church and a promoter of inexplicable controversies. Luther explained the true and important doctrine of penitence, says Melanchthon, which was involved in the profoundest darkness. He showed in what it consists and where refuge and consolation could be obtained under a sense of divine displeasure. He illustrated the statements of Paul respecting justification by faith and showed the distinction between the law and the gospel, civil and spiritual justification. He admonished men to pray in the exercise of faith and a good conscience to the only mediator and son of God who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us and not to images or deceased saints according to the shocking practice of the ignorant multitude. He was, Melanchthon concludes his funeral speech, an important instrument in the hands of God, of public utility, 
So let us diligently study the truth he taught, imitating in our humble situations his fear of God, his faith, the intensity of his devotions, the integrity of his ministerial character, his purity, his careful avoidance of seditious counsel, his ardent thirst of knowledge, and as we frequently meditate upon the pious examples of those, those illustrious guides of the church, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and Paul, whose histories are transmitted to us, let us frequently reflect upon the doctrine and the course of life which distinguished our departed friend, says Melanchthon. Now, the reception of Luther in Lutheran circles has not always been that robustly theological, at least not in every single case, and I'll just show you before we move again to uh, uh, various non-Lutheran types of Luther reception, a couple of examples. Um, so we've just, we've just seen Philip Melanchthon in his um, funeral oration, but for later centuries it was more the hagiography surrounding Luther that I think mattered, um, that, that, that mattered uh, rather than the doctrine that he always taught on necessarily his sort of uh, particular character. So here we have uh, what probably is an early, a late 18th, early 19th century um, depiction of Luther as a family man. Very often he was depicted as a hero, which perhaps he also was. Um, here I think he is depicted more as a German hero, uh, the one who challenged the um, the autocracy of the papacy and, in a sense, put Germany and the German voice on the map. Um, there are also examples of uh, incombustible Luther, um, and that's a certain set of legends which um, the Reformation historian Bob Scribner uncovered were um, apparently um, one of the most popular ones, or one of the most famous ones, um, uh, had its beginning in 1634 when a pastor's study was consumed by fire and the only thing that miraculously survived the flames was a picture of Luther, apparently intact. Uh, and um, that was sort of the first or the most widely known incombustible Luther. Uh, then you had... Um, I think a very similar incident that actually happened in the house in which Luther had been born in, uh, in Eisleben, the entire upper floor of the house um, uh, burned down, but again, miraculously, a portrait of Luther survived. Um, and there you had another incombustible Luther. And Scribner actually says that the first of the incombustible Luthers um, was um, actually a, a, a report uh, already from 1521, uh, when Luther's books were burned um, after the Diet of uh, Worms, apparently there was a there was a picture of Luther, a woodcut of Luther um, that did not burn, and the woodcut said Martin Luther, teacher of the gospel. Um, so here you have again a set of examples, just very, very brief, of how Luther had been received in his own Lutheran circles, very often as a teacher of the church, as a certain um, uh, character and an example of piety, though that's a very controversial kind of example. But right from the beginning, there was already this kind of hagiography. People were very selective in how they approached Luther and what they wanted to glean from him. So the German hero, the family man, uh, the Protestant saint, the incombustible Luther. 
whatever we say about him, Luther was certainly larger than life. Larger than life already in his own lifetime. And this is a very um, famous depiction of Luther from 1983 um, for a colloquy that took place in Nuremberg. Uh, what is really fascinating about him is that if you, if you, if you pay attention, what you can see in Luther's coat is, is the crucifix, but you can also see uh, sort of the peasants revolting. You can have, you can see armies. You, you basically see all that Luther um, put in motion or is said to have put in motion, all the kind of forces, political forces beyond simply the church. And, and that is, uh, I think the picture sort of shows very well how very complicated the legacy of Luther is, um, that it's not just a question of the restoration of doctrine, but also the price um, to be paid for that. And that is probably a truer picture Picture, a picture true to, uh, true, that is more true to Luther's character than um, some of those uh, hagiographic legends about, uh, uh, you know, about Luther as the family man or uh, Luther as the, as the sol solitary German um, hero. So this takes me to the real topic of this, um, uh, of this presentation. There are also depictions of Luther that do try to put him in his own context. And that also mean, means the context, not just of Germany at a particular time, not just of his family, not just of his university life, not just of him at the Warburg translating the Bible and being this, this lone and solitary figure, uh, you know, so, sort of uh, single-handedly implementing the Reformation, but also Luther in the company of other reformers, of fellow workers in, uh, in God's vineyard. Uh, Luther, who may have been um, in some sense, the first, but really wasn't, who was preceded by a whole line of people that called that had called for the reform of the church. Uh, so here we have Luther surrounded by all these other reformers, some of whom received what he had to say very appreciatively, um, and some of whom received what he had to say both appreciatively and negatively, and pushed back again uh, against some of his insights. So what um, a friend of mine and I tried to do uh, a couple of years ago, in 2014, is to perhaps stage a similar kind of dialogue. Uh, we asked ourselves, what, what might happen if we were to deliver Luther over to non-Lutherans and have a conversation about the legacy of Luther uh, in other denominations and perhaps find out from them uh, not just what they think about Luther, but really find out from them about ourselves. Um, so. This was the Ecumenical Luther Conference that took place at Wabash College that my friend who teaches there and I co-organized. And um, it eventually gave rise to this volume, Luther Refracted, that has all the essays that were presented uh, at the conference. Uh, what we tried to do, like I said, was a different kind of ecumenism, not just the kind of ecumenism that looks for the lowest common denominator. I think there are ecumenisms like that. Let's just sort of figure out what we agree on, and then let's just ignore everything else. Um, this, was, um, this was an ecumenism where we were interested not just in, or not so much in the authentic Luther, but rather, uh, because I think that, that kind of a figure is, is already in his lifetime, um, uh, already in Luther's lifetime, was a bit of a pipe dream. There was really never this sort of authentic Luther. As we saw, um, he... Uh, by the you know by the time the 20s the 1520s were over he already had seven heads um, and were received uh, was received in a number of ways 
um, before the 1520s were over. So we were interested, like I said, not so much in the authentic Luther, but in, but in learning from others how they, their traditions received Luther, what they learned from him, where and, where and why they disagreed with him, and then we were interested in finding out what we could learn from this kind of um, appropriation of Luther by others, since we do not presume to have any kind of mo monopoly on, um, on Luther. So the, the participants in the, in the conference were, I'll just give you a, a, a brief description. There were three Roman Catholics, uh, very three very different Roman Catholic voices, one Presbyterian, one Baptist, one Disciples of Christ, one uh, person who was from the Evangelical Covenant Church, um, and one German Protestant and one Episcopalian, um, and that was Randall Zachman, who teaches at uh, the University of Notre Dame, uh, who is a Reformation historian at the University of Notre Dame. And we were, we were surprised. I mean, we basically said, you know, tell us what you think of Luther and how your traditions have received him. And we were surprised by the number, the array of topics that were represented. Um, so one Catholic scholar, Jared Wicks, um, talked about how he had spent 50 years of his life as a Luther scholar um, while teaching at the Gregorian University in Rome and uh, at various schools in Chicago and so on and so forth. So um, that, was, that was fascinating to, uh, to hear a Catholic who has devoted um, uh, more than 50 years to studying and engaging Luther um, at a very profound and profoundly theological level. Um, so that was one topic. The priesthood of all believers was another topic. Um, that's something that, that Luther certainly talked about, but how is it received by others, and what kind of learning um, can there be if we sort of uncover this, this interesting case of reception? Liturgy and worship were another topic. Baptism, the hiddenness of God, the nature of faith, um, Randall Zachman, and if I have some time at the very end, I would like to read you just a little bit out of his essay, talked about what it means to face death and how he learned from Luther to face death, um, which is a very, it was a very unusual essay in the sense that it was both scholarly, but the scholarship sort of took the back seat in the essay, and it was more sort of a confession of a person who happens to be a scholar, um, a person who at some point realizes that, that he has to die, and what that means and is there something that Luther can teach him on that? What does it mean to meditate on your own death? Um, scripture was another topic, not surprising. And then uh, finally, Luther's relation uh, to, uh, to Protestantism. Just to give you, because um, these topics are very varied, and I was, uh, I've tried to systematize them a little bit, and just to, uh, just to give you a sense of what the major areas are, where Luther seems to be sort of fruitful leaven uh, for further thought um, in, and engagement and pushback. Um, so I would like to do that very briefly here under the rubrics of uh, the external and objective uh, nature of God's action. This, is, this was kind of a, a motif that emerged from a lot of the essay, that God's action is something outside of us. And that, that is very important in Luther's theology. Uh, the second topic was the importance of the church for Luther. Um, very often we think of him as sort of this champion of individual faith, uh, but it, it became very clear to us that what people appreciated Luther for was his emphasis on the church. And then the third topic 
was, here's the, here's the more individual dimension, the Christian before God, what it means to stand before God as a Christian or as a person, as a human, as a human being. So let me, let me start with the first one, the external objective nature of God's action. Uh, and this takes me to the essay by Jared Wicks, the um, Roman Catholic theologian who uh, has been a Luther scholar since the, since the 60s. So uh, more than 50 years um, of, uh, of very close engagement with Luther. And Wicks says that um, what really got him interested in Luther was really, uh, was really sort of the injunction that came out of the Second Vatican Council to, um, to pay attention to others, but not just that. The, Vatican, the Second Vatican Council, in one of its constitutions, Dei Verbum, the Word of God, uh, made that kind of an opening, an engagement possible. Because Vatican, uh, the Second Vatican Council emphasized, um, and here you, you will see certain convergences with uh, Luther's own emphases, the Second Vatican Council emphasized that revelation uh, was not so much, or the very concept of revelation, was not so much um, about the teaching of the church's magisterium, um, to which the believer then, then assented. But revelation had, uh, was personal, historical, and centered in Christ. So there's, there was a movement uh, in the Second Vatican Council to say what revelation is about is not just what the magisterium teaches, but uh, what needs to be emphasized is, first of all, the personal historical, um, uh, the personal historical character of revelation and how it centers in Christ. Um, the defining content of God's revelation comes from the Christ event. This is what um, the Constitution says. And then in that case, like I said, faith is less the assent to the teaching of the church and faith becomes more trust in the God who is with us. Uh, if we define revelation like that, if we focus on the Christ event before the kind of cognitive uh, sort of uh, dogmatic formulation of, of, of revelation. The Second Vatican Council also de-emphasized, if you like, um, unwritten apostolic traditions as something that existed alongside of Scripture and emphasized tradition as kind of um, a living, trans uh, a living um, transference and living passing on of the content of the faith. Um, tradition has more to do with how the church lives and witnesses to the gospel rather than with something that supplements scripture and stands um, uh, next to scripture. And the Second Vatican Council also emphasized the importance of scripture in preaching um, and uh, that being one of the ways, an important way, in which God is brought near uh, to the communities of faith. So the ground had been prepared by the Second Vatican Council for somebody like Jared Wicks, who was a young Jesuit, um, and who went to Germany to do his PhD uh, to engage somebody like Luther, because you can see that the emphasis in the council uh, was so much on Christ that in a sense there was a point of convergence, or at least a dialogue could be staged between um, what revelation in Christ is and how it's interpreted in Roman Catholic circles and what the emphasis on Christ means in Luther's own um, theology. And that um, uh, really led Wicks to realize, first of all, that um, 
Christ and how we talk about Christ is very is 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 a point of convergence is a is a place where um, some dialogue can be held. But it also made Wicks realize that Luther was not this kind of um, caricatured Luther, uh, uh, already, you know, in some sense um, uh, caricatured in his own lifetime in a lot of um, Roman Catholic pamphlets, who was this champion of a very individualistic faith. That Luther was, uh, throughout his lifetime, a huge proponent um, of the role of Christ in faith. And Christ really um, uh, presented to the believer in very concrete ways. Not just um, Christ who sort of lives in the heart of the believer, but Christ who offers himself in the sacrament. Uh, Christ who comes to us in the preached word. And um, that week says... Um, was very was very important because he realized it was not just about again convergence uh, in Christological thinking in thinking about Christ, but it was also convergence in uh, what was very important and essential for Luther: the faith that um, uh, takes hold of the sacrament uh, and sees the sacrament as God's action on behalf of the believer. That faith has an objective dimension. It latches onto something that is outside of itself rather than being preoccupied with itself. So Luther, yes, was a champion of faith and was a champion of Christ, but always in the sense that um, what Christ has done precedes faith and faith uh, takes hold of what Christ continues to do, namely, for example, to offer his body and blood in, uh, in the Eucharist. Um, so Wicks was uh, one of the very first Luther scholars, and this is, it's important to emphasize, even over against certain Lutheran scholars who, to, to emphasize this, this objective dimension of faith. Um, and, uh, and his research has been extremely valuable uh, both to Lutherans and to, and to, to Catholics. Um, now, having said that, I think one person to uh, also bring into the mix now at this point is one of our evangelical voices. Um, Matt Jensen, who, speaking from the perspective of evangelicalism, now um, really wanted really really wanted to emphasize that this kind of objective dimension of faith and how important it is to Protestants and how important a corrective it is um, to certain types of uh, certain types of evangelicalism. And this is what Jensen writes in his essay: Faith can become fascinated with itself. A faith that attends to itself is a faith curved inward. But this is Luther's image for the sinner, being curved inward. The sinner is curved in on himself. The Christian finds her life outside herself in Christ. This curving can happen when, bizarrely, faith, faith prides itself on its great feats, trumpeting its accomplishments. The wide variety of prosperity gospels trades on stories of Herculean faith, calling people to just have a little more faith and their American dreams will come true. Such faith demands it does not receive. It tells God how it is rather than listening to the shepherd's voice. I think this is, this is, this is, very, this is very interesting uh, in the sense that on the one hand we have a Catholic scholar who comes to appreciate the objective dimension of faith in Luther's theology, who realizes that Luther, even as a champion of faith, is really a champion of Christ, 
and the continued availability of Christ, the continued work of Christ in the midst of his people. And then we have an evangelical who also realizes that Luther can be a teacher here, uh, that, um, that when Luther champions faith, it's never faith that is preoccupied with itself or fascinated with itself. It's always faith that is taken out of itself um, to, um, uh, to rest in what God does and continues to do um, in, the, in the assembly. Um, and another Catholic scholar also emphasized precisely this dimension. Um, Susan Wood from Marquette University wrote a, a very fascinating essay on uh, Luther's notion of returning to baptism daily and what it means to return to your baptism. Uh, to realize what your identity is. And she was very appreciative uh, precisely of that kind of piety, um, saying that Catholics all too quickly go to penance. Uh, whereas in reality, what I mean, not that penance is unimportant or that repentance is unimportant, but what should form, in a sense, the daily, um, kind of a daily, a fundamental daily aspect of the Christian life is remembering that we are baptized, that our identity lies beyond ourselves and it lies in this act that God has performed on our behalf. And Luther's language can, here can be very strong. He, he will say that you know, when a child is baptized or when a person is baptized, it's really God who plunges the person under the water, uh, who kills and makes alive. And that is something in which we, in which we rest. Um, I may skip this quote from Luther's large catechism um, since I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of time and address some of, this other, some of these other topics that emerged in the course of our conference. So the first topic was faith as always related to the objective action of God and continued action of God. Um, the second topic was the, uh, was the importance of the church um, that our um, non-Lutherans emphasized to us. And here... Um, uh, Brian Brewer, uh, a Baptist, um, offered a very interesting and fascinating critique of this notion of soul competency in Baptist theology, where believers pretty much sort of become almost like churches unto themselves. Um, and he said it's, it would be really fascinating, and it's really, uh, it's really going on in certain Baptist circles. Uh, it would be fascinating to recover what the priesthood of all believers originally meant and what it is supposed to mean. Uh, that namely, that the priesthood of all believers is not the priesthood of the singular believer or the solitary believer, um, but rather has a communal dimension. And uh, uh, Brewer quotes um, um, a Lutheran theologian in his essay, and I think this is probably the quote that I'll give you. Uh, um, it's a pretty long essay that kind of traces the development of the priest, of the notion of the priesthood of all believers in Baptist circles and its kind of um, uh, devolution into and dissolution into this notion of the of the, the singular believer as a as a priest unto themselves. Um, but this 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 quote summarizes the gist of what uh, Brewer is after. Uh, Althaus writes, "The priesthood means we stand before God, pray for others." intercede with and sacrifice ourselves to God and proclaim the word to one another. Luther never understands the priesthood of all believers merely in the Protestant sense of the Christian's freedom to stand in a direct relationship to God without a human mediator. 
Rather, he constantly emphasizes the Christian's evangelical authority to come before God on behalf of the brethren and also of the world. The universal priesthood expresses not religious individualism, but its exact opposite, the reality of the congregation as a, as a community. Um, so that's one aspect of Luther's theology that, um, that our Baptist friend um, emphasized to us as worth recovering. Now, our Disciples of Christ um, presenter uh, talked about something different. Um, he also talked about the church, but, but emphasized in that context um, that the church can never become self-righteous. That there is a tendency of the church and people of faith to uh, become curved in on themselves along the lines of what Luther describes as sin. Um, so you have a quote from Luther here from Romans, uh, which Brewer, and I'll tell you that in a moment, applied to the church. But let me just read this quote. Um, Luther says, Our nature has been so deeply curved in upon itself because of the viciousness of original sin that it not only turns the finest gifts of God in upon itself and enjoys them, indeed, it even uses God himself to achieve these aims, but it also seems to be ignorant of this very fact that in acting so iniquitously, so perversely, and in such a depraved way, it is even seeking God for its own sake. So, on the one hand, we, what we have in Luther's theology is an emphasis on the communal nature of Christianity. Uh, God in our midst, Christians coming before God with and on behalf of one another. But on the other hand, what we also find in Luther's theology is um, an emphasis on sin as not something that only concerns the individual, but sin as really uh, as something that pertains to the church itself. That the people of God very often are the ones who take God's gifts for granted, who very often, because they have those gifts, speak um, down to others and presume uh, a certain kind of righteousness that, not, that Luther says does not belong to them. So, um, Matt Bolton's essay, uh, he is the Disciples of Christ person, his title was, the title of his essay was Luther, Luther's Liturgical Attack on Christendom. Um, and he emphasized precisely the tendency of the church or the temptation that the church faces um, to become self-righteous and how um, Luther's understanding of the liturgy and his understanding of worship is meant to disturb that and destabilize that. That in some sense, we also worship together to realize that we are sinners, not just individually, but as a community of faith, we have the tendency to create and to revel in our own self-righteousness. Um, and in that sense, then the church becomes the place of repentance uh, and also a place of praise. And this is what, uh, what Bolton emphasized um, in his essay. Um, I'm not going to have much time to read to you from Randall Zachman's essay, but uh, let me just say a couple of words over the next maybe two minutes, and then if there are any questions, I'll be happy to take those. Um, uh, let me say a couple of words about the third theme. The, thir the, the third theme was the Christian before God. So the first one, God in the midst of the assembly. The second theme that emerged out of the present presentations was 
um, the assembly itself as both something necessary and yet something very prone to temptation, uh, to its own being curved in um, on itself. And then the individual Christian before God. Uh, and here, um, our third Catholic presenter, David Tracy from the University of Chicago, and uh, Randall Zachman, who, is the, the, who was our one Episcopalian, um, really spoke to this notion of anfechtung, um, the struggle of the Christian, even in the face of God, um, and a very honest struggle, and a very often a struggle that even um, in the midst of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to undertake um, ourselves. Um, David Tracy talked about um, uh, kind of the, the hiddenness of God in history, but also in our own human hearts. Um, how very often um, we do not see and do not understand and do not have any kind of rational purchase on what God might be up to and what God might be doing. And he correlated that hiddenness of God in history and in my own heart, in my own wrestling uh, with myself and with history. He correlated that with the hiddenness of God in the cross. That God responds to his own hiddenness. The fact that we do not grasp him and in a sense can, can say, well, we figured him out. God responds to that with his own hiddenness, the hiddenness of the cross. He gives himself to us in that which is lowly, that which uh, appears to contradict the very notion of God. He gives himself to us in um, not just the cross, but then also the loneliness um, of the bread and the wine, um, which are his body and blood, and the loneliness of baptismal water, where we must necessarily ask, how can water do such great things? Um, so that was David Tracy. And then Randall Zachman, the Episcopalian, uh, like I said, wrote a very personal essay, um, even as a scholar of the Reformation, in which he talked about what it means to struggle with mortality and with death. Um, and really found in Luther an amazing resource in the face of his own longing, that is uh, Randall Zachman's longing, that uh, longing for simply annihilation. He says maybe annihilation would be the best thing to happen to me. Uh, because, but then he says Luther, Luther has taught me to um, take seriously the fact that before God I have to die my own death. Nobody can die it for me. Even, if, even if, as there are people around me, uh, I will be before God myself. I will be accused by my own conscience because then finally no secrets will be hid um, and the conscience will continue to accuse me. Um, and he really, in the, in, he really says, I appreciate Luther for bringing this out so starkly. And to us, to our ears, it may sound just simply morbid. We don't think about death uh, nearly enough. Perhaps we should. Uh, but, but the reality of that uh, starkness of my own self-accusation before God and my conscience is the fact that there will be there will be also someone before God who will take all that sin and who has already taken that sin from me. He will be Peter the denier. Uh, he will be the murderer. He will be everything that I've ever been and have not wanted to be, and that will be Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, so if you, if you ever want to um, just read, uh, like I said, a, 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 a deeply personal essay by somebody who is generally accustomed to writing in a, in a kind of impersonal scholarly mode, I really recommend um, 
this essay by Randall Zachman, everybody, everybody must fight his own battle with death by himself alone, because it's, a, it's really kind of a, a deeply Christological piece. So um, I'm afraid that I'm out of time pretty much. Um, if I have, uh, if uh, I'm happy to to linger on, if you have any any questions and to answer any questions that you may have, um, so thank you very much for your attention and thank you for coming. <laughs>